Hey, welcome back to Intimate Interactions. Let's get back to discussing the ways we share love and intimacy with our fellow humans. Relationships, kink, polyamory, group sex, it's time to unlearn stigma and live our best lives as our best selves. All thanks to my amazing Patreon supporters. Intimate Interactions has no ads but this one. If you want to keep it that way, you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon. You get access to exclusive premium content like all of my coping with jealousy stuff. And hey, if that makes you jealous of my patrons, it sounds like it might be time to sign up. Free resources are available at victorsalmon.com slash resources, and book recommendations are at intimatepodcast.com forward slash books. Also, my Patreon supporters don't have to listen to this ad. Now, let's talk about the episode. Jazz Goldman and I talk about organizing sex-positive and sex-on-premises events today. We talk about our love of these events and why we volunteer so much of our time to do that work. We share our experiences in sex communities, including the burner scene. I do use the word literally in this episode to mean figuratively, which is now definitively one of the definitions. I'm also apologizing for doing so. Don't hate me for using modern English, okay? We also talk about the experience of organizing as mixed-race, non-binary people of color. I will welcome everyone. Wow, I can't even speak properly. Because <laughs> you get strawberry in I'm the mail. Strawberries. I will welcome everyone to another session of Intimate Interactions. I'm here with Jazz Goldman. We just went to the Rifle Bird Sanctuary, and we are on our way back. And we thought, why not record another podcast? <laughs> so we want to talk to you today about creating sex-positive events. And we're going to talk a little bit about event organizing, and we're going to talk about um, things that work really well, things that don't work really well. Um, just in our experience, you may have a different experience. Yeah. Yep. If we get interrupted by long pauses, it's because we're eating these amazing strawberries that we just picked up from Emily Farms in West Island. So good. They're very delicious. Yeah. Like, we're going to probably finish most of this three-pound slat. Yeah, it's like a two and a half pound box for sure. Okay. Yeah. Which is like, what, two kilos? It's probably a two kilo flat. Why did I not think of that? They just call it two and a half pounds, but it's probably two kilos. Anyway, it's not important. Huh. <laughs> Certainly not to this American brain. I'm like, sure, whatever. Oh, wait, that makes absolutely no sense because kilos kilo are very 2. heavy. Two pounds. So that's like, never mind. I'm on crack. This does not make sense. All right. Natural strawberry crack. Very much so. I am currently like, getting high off of the sugar in these strawberries. <laughs> All right. Do you want to talk first about the difference between sex on premises and sex positive event organizing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, generally the main distinction is that sex positive maybe will include nudity or, um, you know, people in some various state of undress, but not actual sex acts. So it's like sexiness is cool, but sexual acts are are off limits and then you know sex on premises means you can do those things mm-hmm. yeah that's been my experience as well and i like to throw both kinds of events although i lean much more towards sex on premises because to me if i'm going to get dressed up and go out and do the whole rigmarole of that for a sexy event and be turned on because i'm in an environment that is encouraging that I would like to be able to follow those feelings to, to whatever full expression that is for the night. I agree. Yeah. And I, I fully enjoy events that, are, that don't involve sex because I'm not going there to get turned on. So it's not like a comparison thing. It's just... Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. 
I do understand why people need to have one and not the other from time to time. And there's more, more you have to consider and potentially more risk, I would say from an emotional standpoint to include sex, um, in an event, but so what (laughs) to me, it's like, yeah, life is about risk. (laughs) So Yeah, I think a lot of the time, whether it's going to a BDSM party, whether it's having multiple relationships, whether it's having sex in a semi-public venue, a lot of these things are things I want to do. And I respect that some people want to reduce their risk while doing the things they want to do. But I think that also needs to be considerate that you don't want to stop doing the thing you want to do. So it's like, how do you do the things you want to do while doing them with as little risk as possible? It's about that risk, like reduction rather than complete removal of the activity. And for me, the activity is I do want to have sex in a semi-public area. Yep. So I am also about the sex on premises events rather than sex positive. Although the other events that I go to that are not specifically for the purpose of being sex on premises, I would like them to be sex positive, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like at a minimum, if it can be sex positive, that's great. And then if it can also be sex positive and sex on premises, woot. Totally. So I'm curious if you want to talk a little bit about your experience organizing, um, even just sex positive events. Yeah. Um, so kind of blossoming out of the community of non-monogamous sex positive group sex enjoying people that I met I I found myself um, beginning to curate my own events and they were invite only Um, I think the maximum number of people um, me and my partners ever had at our events were like 30 you know so small small like a typical size for a party that's like oh yeah we had a lot of people is 30 I think and usually it was less than that Usually it was more in the like 20, 15 to 20 people. And I found that that was a real sweet spot for, for private events. Um, it's like big enough that there's something going on. Um, there aren't lulls in the, in the, in the event, but small enough that everyone feels like they get to know each other, even if they're not directly engaging. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I feel like if there are 20 people at an event, there are going to be like probably two people that I definitely don't want to interact with and two people I definitely do. And then there'll be like the great, there'll be everywhere in between, which will probably be five people I might be interested in five people I'm probably not interested in. And then the middle ground is like, whatever. Yeah. So out of that community, I found myself throwing private events and basically just ripping wholesale, all the things that I saw my friends doing. And it was, it was like actually with permission, we were all, wanting to share that stuff with each other um but yeah I started doing that um I would say in 2008 2007 so somewhere in my 12 12 years ago yeah what so much time has passed I know I know I started young somewhere between sophomore and junior year in college is when that because like in my I'm first envious of how early you started into this lifestyle it, it came with a lot of benefits and it came with a lot of drawbacks and like the the majority of the rest of the people in my community were a minimum 
of 12 years older than me. So that was really cool for reasons you might expect. And it was also not great um, in some for ways. reasons you might expect. Yeah, yeah. Like the, the youngster in the group of older folks is like a thing that happens in many different communities. And, you know, if they're... If you don't find other peers your own age, and if you don't, like, if the people around you who are older are not really thinking about you in terms of, like, social development, then then some, some mishaps can, can come along. Woo! All's good. We're just cornering very aggressively. <laughs> yeah, I did start early, and I'm, I'm lucky in that, like, I have a body of experience behind me that is sizable, that I can be a young person still at 31 and like talk about shit because I know because I've done it um but yeah somewhere somewhere in my second and th- or third year of college I think is when we really tried to start throwing them more and then when I went into the triad stuff we we did as well um I think the first like really crafted intentional like planned months in advance invite only um like even tried to get a few friends from out of town sort of thing that we did was our third year anniversary so we threw a play party for ourselves to commemorate our third year of being together that's so cute (laughs) yeah and it was one of the best parties we ever did and it was so fun and it was in some ways it was like the culmination of everything that we'd been experiencing with with our community um, and it was full of people who really cared about us deeply and you know it was a good time um, did you want to know more about like the, the the technical things that went into that um sorry I'm just noticing. changing lanes because the one is blocked off there was an accident on the road up ahead oh so there's a lot of emergency services doing stuff yeah which means we're going to have to sit through a lot of traffic, unfortunately, because that's the HOV lane that they blocked off. Good thing we've got this to do. Right? Um, right. So, what were we talking about? Sorry, what was the question you asked? Oh, I was just like, did you want to know more more of the technical things that uh, that went into to putting on these events? Because you were yeah. like, tell me about it. Yeah, okay, so... Um, some of these things I would never think about in this way again, but at the time, gender balance was a really important concept. Um, and it was, we, we thought of it that way because we were trying to avoid the too many dicks on the dance floor sort of thing. Um, so, so we were intentional about gender balance And that actually made a big difference because it also affected the number of people we could invite. Like it made us be mindful for another reason about number of attendees. Um, Another thing that we did was like, we would would write custom emails that were very detailed. Um, Like, you know, an intro of what to expect for for the evening or afternoon, you know, the basics of who, what, where, when. But then like, if you want to bring a partner that we haven't met, you have to check with us first. Um, you know, the we had something called um, an all skate versus like a. That's adorable. Yeah, a, like a ninja 
sort of thing, which is again, like that's not terminology I would play with anymore. But um, all skates are, for those of you who've never been to a roller skating rink, everyone on the floor versus like ladies on the floor or couples on the floor, which is, you know, a thing. And parties can be centered in that way. Like people do throw play parties that are like just for couples, no singles. Boring to me, but, but to each their sure. own and go in good health, you know. Right. Um, so, yeah, like we would really spend time crafting the emails and people had to respond. They had to respond by a certain date. They had to commit to the time frame, which meant just showing up on time. People could, of course, leave whenever they wanted. We encouraged folks to wait through the end of the welcome circle. And that was also like sort of a mechanism for providing an out for people and creating a sense of safety. It was like, look, we're all gonna do this thing where we do the intros, please show up on time for that. And if you get through that and you're like, ooh, this is not for me, please leave. And you know, if, if someone needed to leave before then they could, it never happened. Um, but that was because we were being really careful about who we invited. Right. And I would say actually to answer a question from a previous episode, like things that, that worked, didn't work when we, when we had the third person involved, um, our standards for invitees changed. And a lot of that was based on his friend group, I would say. And in my opinion, many of them were not really cut out for the kind of style that me and my first partner were used to. Um, so that changed and that then affected the tones of the parties and like, in my opinion, the caliber of the experiences. Um, so having a very choosy list of invitees is- um, right. Is, is a big thing for private events. Like the, the rules are different for bigger. And I, my, my experience is almost exclusively throwing private events with the exception of, um, of a public um, sex positive alternative lifestyle culture event that I co-founded a local chapter with a bunch of other people. I mean, the, the event existed already and we opened a chapter together and um and that was you know public events we had to rent spaces and we had to figure all that kind of stuff out and figure out the liquor license and we didn't have a liquor license you know but think about all those things we even had to um to like create an llc because that turned out to be the best option so then there was like a financial person on board who like their day job involved that work you know Wow. Yeah. So I've done that and I did that for almost two years. I think it was two calendar years, but it was like three parties total or something like that. And, and then apart from that experience, it's just been homegrown shit. Cool. So I'm curious how your experience was affected as a femme presenting human. Like how did that affect attending those parties and the way people behaved and how did that affect trying to organize those parties and the way people behaved with the private ones or the group ones Ooh, i'm curious to hear about the private ones first because i imagine it was less of an impact yeah i'm curious to hear about how like group dynamics your feminist impacted group dynamics and organizing sex parties totally yeah so so with the private stuff it was very easy i was often co-organizing with other femmes um and so there wasn't really a lot of power struggles. I don't remember there ever being 
um, great discord around who was in or out on the list. Like we were pretty much always in agreement. Um, but there were a lot of things about that that was just lucky. Like my, my partner at the time and I just were naturally in lockstep about those sort of things. And even though we didn't share a lot of sexual partners, um, we would like kind of vibe with all of the people that we were interested in on some level. Um, but yeah, so the, the private stuff was, was, was really easy, honestly, and fun and didn't feel a lot like work. And with the public, um, facing event organization that I did, um, it was like the opposite, unfortunately. And I found myself like fulfilling way too many roles like I was trying to do a lot of artistic creation in terms of promotion and like party theme creation um and like ethics like that's kind of where I accidentally got my start in like the thread of restorative justice world like I, I couldn't officially call it that but but the, the concepts and the things that were bugging me and why they were bugging me and what I felt was my duty to try to push back against that or were just so entirely wrapped up in, um, in social justice work because I was like, well, wait a second. Like, why is it that, that like when, when us femmes say things like it takes a masked person repeating the same shit for it to be actually heard. Like that was literally happening. And I'd never experienced that so much in my life before because I'd just been lucky and not been in those environments so much. Or I was naive at the time and didn't notice, you know? But right. but there was a breaking point for me and I had to leave because ultimately it was clear that the power dynamics were going to stay as they were, even though some of the people after I like... <laughs> I wrote like... A sev like an essay essentially like after the first event and just like detailed all of the things that were against the ethics and the codes that had been handed to us as a new chapter in this event so we had a blueprint and we had like values and all sorts of mission statement -y things that were why we had decided to do it and I was like hey y'all this is not happening um, and so I did that and it was like a big hubbub in the group and there was like some forward movement around that. And then it, it sort of plateaued. And then I realized that I was just going to have to keep battling uphill. Like it really wasn't going to change. And like other femmes of color, and there were very few of us in the group, like were, you know, alienated and left. So it was like all, all the people that were more aligned with my own like proclivities you know exited and so it was really just being left with the people who had the most shit to learn um so so yeah hmm just sort of reflecting on that and the challenges and I might as well ask the um, the partner question or associated question with that one, which is how did your blackness or Jewishness impact the way people treated you in organizing spaces as a minority? Yeah. Well, in general, because of how 
racism and stereotyping work, I am not seen as a Jew anywhere. So the impact <laughs> is is minimal. Um, it comes up, and you know, because I am a Jew, like I notice anti-Semitism even when it's very subtle. Um, but it didn't. That really wasn't so much a thing. But my blackness means that people just weren't fucking listening, and um, it took more effort and more repetition to get things across. It was it was even just straight up difficult to have equal voice in a meeting. Like the the mask folks um, in the group would just completely dominate the conversations and um, always had to throw their bit in. So like the meetings would would be really long and really windy and disorganized because every mask had to fucking say something for every speaking point, whether or not they were saying anything interesting or original or contributing actually to the conversation. They just had to speak. Um, and they didn't know that they were doing that. <laughs> um, and it took me a, a second to figure it out because I just, you know, I haven't been around a lot of tech people in an organizational capacity. So the stuff that maybe those who have been in those environments, maybe they're used to it or wouldn't be, um, you know, thrown off guard. I was just like, what the actual hell? <laughs> like, really? One more time you gotta speak? Okay. Yeah. And just this, I mean, there was, there was all of these overarching meadow white supremacist things about perfectionism and doing it right. And like, um, being, appealing to the masses like just all this kind of things that shouldn't matter like in my opinion when you're event organizing around sex positivity like could you could you go into a little more detail about the perfectionism piece and doing it right in in the context of white supremacy well i mean the idea of right and wrong in a very fixed sense i think is like a major underpinning of white supremacy. Um, life is not black and white. Um, and the idea that if you try hard enough, you can do right is just kind of, it's bullshit to me. I'm trying to, 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 to hone in on the, like, what was a specific, and this was a few years back now, what was a specific expression of perfectionism well, like, we tried to do everything, for example, that was listed as, like, these are the things that could comprise this event. Because, again, we had a really extensive blueprint. Like, it was, a, there was a whole um, organizer-only website full of hyperlinks and, like, um, like, there would be words and you'd click on them and then it would drop down to, like, what's, what's this organization's philosophy on consent, on non-hierarchical oh here we go so explicitly in the the mission and like how you do this this event was non-hierarchical organizing no one is in charge and also autonomous organizing so people don't have to get consensus like you you still want to tell people what you're doing and hopefully get full agreement but if you're in charge of an area of this of this project sure you're in charge of that you volunteered to do it because everyone's picking the things that they want to do and so you get to just decide nope 
not at all. For example, <laughs> me and the other black femme who, are, who um, were in the thing at the time, we took it up to come up with the theme and the name and they wouldn't let us use the name that we wanted to use. It was a good name, but they thought it was too obscure and that people wouldn't understand it. Um, we, we were both like, you which, know. Which really doesn't matter. I mean, there are plenty of names that most people don't understand the references behind. Right. Like if it's, and this even sounds elitist to me, but I'll say it, like if it's an easy enough word to pronounce and read, then that's really all that should matter for a private non-profit event. Like we weren't trying to, like weren't trying to make money off of this. So it didn't need to have any kind of commercial appeal. Um, and so, you know, like that was, that was bullshit. <laughs> it was just bullshit that like the explicit instructions and like part of the reason why I even wanted to do it were not like people were not able to, to follow through on that. So did you find that like other organizers that you were working with did have more autonomy and that you felt like you were being um, interrupted or disrupted more frequently? A thousand percent. Yes. Like actually that is what happened. And I didn't re fully see that at the time because I was too caught up in my own experience and not able to pull out and look at uh, things a little more comprehensively. But yeah, there were people who like their job was to do one aspect of the event and they just went off and did it and barely talked to anyone and like got their shit together and completed the task. And it's amazing how that works when you like actually let people do the thing that they say they want to do right. and are capable of. Right. Um, and then there was like all of this stuff, like it was recommended to not take on too many roles. So everyone was trying to be picky about not taking on too much responsibility. But then there were, of course, obvious things that no one wanted to do. And who ended up doing them? The queer brown people. Of course. Um, so that was also bull. Yeah. Hmm. Do you want to talk about your organizing stuff at all? Uh, I feel like a lot of it might be a little too political and fresh, possibly. Um, my organizing stuff. Okay. I don't know that I have any... I will, I will answer no comment right now. <laughs> Fair. So, I guess... Do you, did you have any misconceptions about organizing a sex-positive space that you would sort of want to list and correct now? Um, I don't know if I would characterize it as misconceptions. Uh, let me talk through it and then see if that sure. is actually true. But what... It's like... I would do a much better job now of being clear on what everyone was in it for because I knew what I was in it for, which is basically the same thing I'm always in for, is like creating the best environment for everyone to really get down and fuck. Like that's, that's my goal with, um, with a sex on premises, sex positive event. Other people I think were in it for reputation. They wanted the cachet, they wanted the social standing. Um, they wanted to use it to parlay other elements of their career. And like, to an extent that was true for me at the time I was wanting to do more um, sexuality workshops because I had been previously and, and then wanted to do my own stuff instead of other people's material. And like, 
I invented the like lending library of sex toys at the event and um, wanted to like be there to like teach and show people how to use stuff and you know just kind of do that kind of style of thing. I ended up being so overtaxed by multiple commitments within the organizing that I was completely unable to do that, which was like a deeply sad thing for me. I was like, oh, great. Like the thing I actually cared about the most besides the fucking, I can't even do. Um, So like really knowing what people are in it for instead of thinking that because we're all drawn to this thing that we're on the same page. Right. Or even on the same team to some extent. Yeah, and I feel like I can probably say this without it being talking out of turn. Like, you got to be clear on the culture of the people. And, like, there was a lot of burner culture infused in that event, both from the people who originally created it and the actual folks that I organized locally with. Fuck, I can I can rant about the white supremacy and burner culture, the level of colonialism and, like, the frustration I've been having with with my experiences in burner culture where I feel like, you know, shit's being, I don't want to say appropriated, even though it absolutely is, but I mean, on basic terms, like, people are being highly disrespectful of, like, really inappropriate things in some cases. Like, yeah, I, mean, I, I should know. be so care. I feel like I need to be super cautious about, like, calling people out specifically, but mm-hmm. it's kind of bullshit to celebrate colonialism in India I don't know how else to say that, but, like, we don't need to glorify, like, a time of mass murders and, like, that kind of colonial oppression. Like, it's it's strictly inappropriate, and it's not something that we should be doing. And I feel like there are specific camps that are, like, to a large extent doing exactly that, right down to a stuffed animal tiger that represents a stuffed tiger that was in... Um, venue in Victoria and like naming a camp after a venue that is named after the ruling monarch of Canada quite literally it, it, it feels like a shrine to colonialism to me and I feel like there is nowhere near enough information about what it's not to say that it isn't that Mm-hmm. I think if it were signed better, I think if it were better acculturated, there are ways of trying to accomplish what they're doing. But unfortunately, to the best of my knowledge, there's no one Indian in that group. Mm-hmm. And to the best of my knowledge, they haven't consulted anyone Indian. And maybe they have, and I just don't know about it. And possibly that person either did a shitty job or they did their job and then no one listened to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which Right. Like, just because you get a brown person in to give the, the much-needed perspective doesn't mean the information transfers all the way through. Right. So, so that's a thing. So when I think about burner culture, like, I think about the hodgepodge of, like, yeah, some people are pretty aware of this shit and, like... Are, are, are fun to hang out with and I like I, I still go every year because I really enjoy the regional burn because it's small and I have friends there and I like volunteering there and I like a lot of the principles behind it but it is sometimes overwhelming how much whiteness is in the space and how much sheer ignorance of like hmm it's probably bad form to you We're know fucking bindi or, or just <laughs> sorry <laughs> maybe but also like just yeah, I don't know. I just can't quite reconcile the whole notion of, like, let's celebrate the Queen of England in the style of, like, occupying India 
and do so with a fucking stuffed tiger to represent the tiger skin that was on the wall of this place. Like, it just, it's, it just creeps me the fuck out. I don't like it. What you're describing is not something I'm super familiar with, but I'm, I'm gathering. It sounds gross. It sounds really gross. And, like, the things about birder culture that I've more directly experienced are just the wastefulness of consumer culture. Like, the amount of trash that is justified because you're going to the burn and then oh, you yeah. spend a week pretending like you're living in a money-free economy. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, the whole and like you're being of... resourceful and like roughing it, and like in some ways you really are. And I went to Burning Man three times. It's difficult. It 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 it's not like just a walk in the park. It requires some skill um, about survival. Some, mm. but really, it's a masquerade. Right. And and parties are fun, and pretending is fun. So like I'm not trying to shit on people's fun. But it needs to be recognized for what it really is at this point, in my opinion. Yeah, especially when the idea of of consumerism is seen as this like evil idea that we want to do away with. There should be no commodification at at regional burns or at Burning Man. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay, that sounds great. And the idea of like we want to be really environmental and leave no trace. Cool. And that's why this, you know, people bring flats of 500 mil plastic water bottles. Right. Like what's your actual carbon footprint that got you there? Right. Like, even if we're going to take out the airplane, which it's like, you know, you got to travel to get where you got to. So that's part of the carbon footprint. We can't reduce as much everything else leading up to it. And and like, yeah, I was like an East Coaster who like basically never set foot in a Walmart or anything like that. And suddenly, because I was now a burner, I was in these in these kinds of stores and like the the exploitation trail of those um, corporations. Mm-hmm. Right. Like all in the name for, like, a week of, of freedom, right? Yeah, that's such an interesting idea, a week of freedom. It's just a different culture with different trappings to me, but it's nice to have the change. Yeah. It was pretty freeing as a 19-year-old. Yeah. Like, I'm glad I went when I did, because I was able to really enjoy the best of what you can enjoy. That's lovely. I just, I think sometimes, like, my white burner friends don't quite get, like, the level of other... Sometimes? Yeah. Usually don't don't seem to understand, like, the level of consideration that, of, like, how upsetting it is to go into a place where someone's... It's literally shitting on your heritage. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can open the door if you want. It's hot. Okay, just trying to... There you go. Enormous sounds of metal. Oh, I just just meant trying to throw your water bottle out. Because, you know, you got that at Sex Geek Summer Camp. Mm-hmm. I am enjoying the ride. It enjoyed the ride to the sanctuary. Oh, yay. And I suppose we're home now, so. Yeah. Let's see. How are we doing on time? We have time for a couple more questions. So maybe I'll ask you, like, one or two more, and then we'll head upstairs. Okay. Okay. Let's see. We were talking about sex-positive events, so Burning Man's actually on topic. Strangely, we stayed on topic. Yeah. <laughs> way, way to go, us. Um, so you talked a little bit about your experience hosting these events. We talked about, like, right, misconceptions. Um, what, are, what are some challenges to creating welcoming group sex environments? You wrote down some notes here. Oh... I did. This is so good. I'm really glad. Um, so some practical challenges are um, it when people's relationships change. And 
as much as I wish that that wouldn't be such a big factor in the flow of community, it really truly is. And a lot of that I think is more just the overarching effect of the heteronormative culture that we're in. Like it's already such a stretch to dip your toe into sex positive slash sex events. And people do that and they get to a point and then other things come into their lives or their previous priorities around family and relationship building creep back in and supersede to the point where they're just like, this is not for me anymore. And while I do think sometimes people age out, that was another one of the notes that I put, like they just get tired of it and maybe just have more interest in different expressions of sexuality and sensuality. When I've often heard people be just like, oh, I'm just not into it anymore. It's like their part, their new partner isn't into it. Right. Or they've decided that if they're going to be starting to start a family, then then they're not into it anymore. Like it's right. They're not. They're mutually exclusive. You couldn't possibly be a sex positive parent that like has your kids at home and you know on Saturday night gets a babysitter and goes out and enjoys a sex party. Mm-hmm. 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 And I've met some people who still manage to do that, but they're really few and far between. And I find that as the kid gets older, mm. that they they just pull out of the community and some of that's not their own fault because we do live in such a sex negative world that there's a much deeper risk if you have a family and that kind of has to be respected and if you've gone through the trouble of (laughs) gestating and then rearing a child like you don't want to jeopardize it for like someone thinking that you're an unfit parent right you know um so people do have to make those hard decisions but that's still not the same thing and frankly with folks like um kamala devi who uh, she she has she had a show on hbo when her kid was already born and she was open about her you know non-monogamy and um sacred sexuality practices like actually their sacred sexuality practices sure, sure. um <laughs> yeah it's 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 really doable and mm-hmm. it's possible and many people have figured it out. Um, so that's like a challenge. Yeah, the relationship status is changing and people that were maybe quote unquote key players as in very enthusiastic and really um, shared of themselves in ways that affected lots of people positively just piecing out. Um, other challenges are essentially proving to people that your event is safe like that is a real challenge to be like no i'm not just saying that this is going to be a cool hot event that has all of these x y and z safety factors built in it is that it really is right and the only way to prove is to get people to show up (laughs) so like that's just sort of a catch-22 ongoing challenge for any sex positive Mm -hmm. or sexuality like engaged invent mm-hmm. mm-hmm. in terms of parents taking risks i've definitely known parents that were out as bdsm mistresses um, which is like highly risky because like a lot of people immediately assume you're a sex worker whether you are or are not mm-hmm. and some are but not all of the bdsm mistresses i know are sex workers yeah um which is not the same like assumption people make about masters Ha, right, right. Because if someone is a master, people don't just assume, oh, he must be a sex worker. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, maybe he does that in his private time. But if someone's a mistress, it's just the immediate assumption. Mm-hmm. And that's not, 
I mean, that is definitely a consequence of sexism, but it isn't directly necessarily sexism. I think mistresses have a much greater niche to do sex work should they choose, or for that matter, just to do professional paid mistress work that doesn't involve sex. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. It's, um, it is far, far harder to find a mistress with experience that is dating and looking for a mask submissive than it is to find a mask submissive looking for a mistress who is dating with experience. Mm. It is also, I would say, there, there seems to be a much larger pool and abundance of mask submissives of really any gendered submissives and of masters, but there seems to be a very small number of experienced femme, like, dominance. Mm -hmm. And wherever they go, there is a swarm of, like, would-be submissives sort of, like, not stalking them, but just, like, hanging out, being like, hey, if you need someone, I'm here. So if it's, it's intimidating as a person who is socialized masculine, even being non-binary. Um, yeah, like, knowing where I fit in that is really weird because, like, I can think of all of the mistresses in the community that are known and... I could probably approach some of them to play, but like, it's just, it just feels weird that I literally know all of the ones in the community that I would play with. There's mm -hmm. like a set number. And you, and you feel some hesitation to like be another person asking something from them? Yes. And I feel some hesitation that it, I, I almost don't like approaching someone based on reputation because it's not an accurate representation of who they are as people. Yeah. It's like not wanting to bother a celebrity because you don't want to be that person. Exactly. And I know they have tons and tons and tons of options. Yeah. Yeah. So I can see that there is that assumption about mistresses because mistresses have more opportunity to do that. But also there's an assumption that if a mistress is like a professional dominatrix, that she must be a sex worker, even though that's not always the case either. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I actually used to be the opposite. Like, as you're talking about this, I remember I used to be the opposite. I would very much go for the the big player in the room on purpose. And some of that was, like, a point of ego. Like, I was like, mm -hmm. I'm cool enough or, like, interesting enough mm -hmm. to just give this a try. Sure. Um, but it actually probably truly had a lot more to do with power. And this is not something that I've really thought about much until this year. And, like, it was a thing I parsed through with um, with an old lover uh, just that, like, when you are a marginalized person, you will still try to seek out power. Because who doesn't want power? That's sort of like a human thing. And so the closest approximation is, is other people who have power. Because you yourself are never going to be able to actually achieve that. And so, yeah, it's it's not great. And I'm I'm really glad to have that perspective now. And it's like... I am still somebody who will go up to whomever the fuck I please if they seem interesting, regardless of their social status. Um, but I do that now with such a different sense of intention and like, I'm just less likely to, to, to go like directly to someone who is like known in a room right. in the way that I would have without thinking in years past. Right. Do you find that, like, when you peg folks, that's really empowering for you? Yeah. You like being in that position of power? I do. I mean, I'm, I'm big on strap-on play, so, like, not just pegging. Like, let me in any of your holes 
it's it's an awesome experience for me as a giver and uh from what I've been told and the feedback I get, it's usually great for the other person too. So that seems like a win-win. Awesome. Well, I guess that means I've empowered you several times then. More than you know. <laughs> well, let's head up and get ready to take you to the bus depot so you can head back home. Yep. So how did you like it, Intimates? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions or directly on patreon.com slash Victor Salmon. Both communities are easy to find from intimatepodcast.com. So what are you waiting for? Go join the free Intimates community and start connecting with others. I'll see you on there. Disclaimer. I apologize if I said something that hit a nerve or played off a hateful idea or stereotype. I'm open to being called in. Chances are, in six months, I'll look back aghast and see something problematic I've since grown from. I'm certainly not perfect, but I am trying to be mindful of the voices I lift up and the perspectives I encourage. You can email feedback to podcast at victorsalmon.com. Thanks for your kindness. Attribution. The tracks I use are published under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The intro track was Lost Souls by Portrayal, and the outro track was Restoration by Uncle Milk. Land Acknowledgement I apologize first for any pronunciations I might butcher. I wanted to acknowledge that I recorded this podcast on the unceded traditional Coast Salish territories of the Musqueam, Kwantlen, Stazuminus, Stolo, Sawasan, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Shout out to the Sekwepmek Nation, on whose land I got my degree, considering the Kamloops Indian Residential School closed only in 1996 when I was 10, I have found nothing but unending patience and kindness in the Tekemlupste Sekwepmek folks with whom I've interacted. Let's never forget genocide in the hope we don't make the same dehumanizing, cruel mistakes again. Thank you.